Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. We are into our second week of a series studying the five chapters of James in five weeks. If you hadn't had a chance to watch our first week's study on chapter one, I encourage you, go back and watch that. Today, we're going to be talking and teaching through James chapter two, a New Testament letter written by the brother of Jesus and one of the leaders of the early church. In chapter two, we are now walking out our faith. If chapter one is about the confident reasons we have to stand on faith in Jesus, chapter two is about a group of people brought together by that belief, what do they do and how do they act? In chapter two, James gives us very practical ways to live out our faith while also driving home the heart of the gospel that love is given freely and sacrificially. Are we being loving to people that we know we can receive no benefit or privilege from? Are we being loving to people we can't relate to or understand or maybe even don't like? Are we calling out those with power even though we know it will cost us? And how do we treat the poor those we are the least likely to receive any return from. 12 years ago, I sat in a Christian leadership conference and it was great and a lot of big names were teaching and preaching, many of them still very active and influential today. The headliner of the conference was former CEO of GE and the late Jack Welch. Jack Welch not being really well known for his outspoken Christian faith, but known as a good productive, driven leader. And he was the keynote speaker in the last session. And in it, he challenged Christian pastors to be seeking those who are more productive, to invest in our high productive, high caliber leaders. And he said the church has a tradition of caring for the lowly and the poor and the broken, but to be more productive, we need to invest in our high productive members of the church. Big applause, a lot of discussion, and then a pastor from Los Angeles, Erwin McManus, came up and gave the closing prayer. And in his closing prayer, he prayed and thanked God that he chooses the weak to shame the strong, and that he works through ordinary men and women, and that he began the mission of the church with a ragtag group of 12 men huddled together and flawed and broken and empowered them by his spirit to become life changers and prayed and thanked God that he chose to work through him, a least likely person to be productive in the kingdom of God, but that God chose him, works through him and empowers him by his spirit. As a church leader, I have wrestled with this balance of caring for the broken and the vulnerable while also investing in those who are leaders, who can lead in the church and can invest back in and themselves care for broken and vulnerable people. And this is quite possibly one of the greatest tensions of working in the modern church, both investing in your leaders while also making space to be pastoral and to care for those who are vulnerable. But in James chapter two, he swings hard, and he swings hard in the direction of caring for the poor and the vulnerable. And he swings hard at our temptation as 
Christians, as church leaders, as people doing our best to follow Jesus, of being captivated by those with wealth, power, and influence. And there is a balance to walk, but we see James swinging hard because our weakness is so tilted towards caring for the powerful and the privileged and those that we can get something from. But we need to begin with what another early church writer says. Paul writes this to the church in Rome. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Romans 5, 7 and 8. In the kingdom of God, none of us are productive, high producers without the redemption of Jesus Christ. None of us are exemplary, well put together, deserving people. We are all sinners brought together by the gracious love and perfection of Christ Jesus. When we talk about power and privilege and caring for the vulnerable, it begins as followers of Jesus with an internalized realization that Jesus Christ died for us sinners, you and me, that we are undeserving people. Or to paraphrase one of my favorite Christian writers, Tim Keller, we are an unwise investment by God, but his grace works miracles in his unmerited love and favor for us. We are a bad investment by God on paper. I am a bad investment and regularly I must remind myself that I don't deserve the good grace of God and the privilege of his Holy Spirit in me, but for his mercy and grace and love. Now James is challenging us in chapter 2 to live out that mentality as Christ lived that his church can live in the same manner. And he's going to have some harsh words for us. Let's dive in. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll paraphrase some of the rest of this chapter. James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Let's talk about favoritism versus love. The next four verses are a very practical application that James gives us about favoritism. He lays out a contrasting story of a wealthy, good-looking man with privilege walks into church and a poor, dirty man also walks in at the same time. And the church kind of greeters gather around the wealthy man, lead him up to a good spot, talk to him. Oh, when did you move here? Oh, great, what do you do? And the poor man just kind of meanders in the back and nobody cares for him, ignores him, and puts all of their time and energy into the wealthy man. I sit in training meetings on budgets and ROI in churches. I know that churches have dinners for their highest givers, and some even give awards at the end of the year for people who have given the most to the mission or to the kingdom in their church body. It comes from a good place of honoring those who sacrifice and give and have the gift of giving in them but it also comes dangerously close to getting a smackdown from St. James. We need to be careful about who we value in our church communities and also realize that the ROI, the return on investment, is not always what drives the church. In fact, it's rarely what does. The image bearers of God 
who come into our doors, who live their lives around us, are what drives our compassion and need. Love itself is rarely calculated or strategic. Think about an arranged marriage or the family that favors the one more productive child very clearly. Well, she was excellent at the piano, has a 4.0 GPA, she's been studying for SATs. This daughter will most likely be able to care for us when we are in our old age and she'll be able to take us into her home. She'll be able to take our last name, make it famous around the community. She'll be able to do all this. So we're gonna love her more. We're gonna invest more in her. And Tommy behind, you know, he's not that great. So you know what, we're gonna clearly love her more, right? That's, that's bad parenting. That's obviously a bad father. In a marriage, we don't come in and go, all right, now this person is going to be able to provide for me perfectly and they're gonna have all the right traits that I need. Some of us do that and you're probably still single well into your 30s. But the calculated life of trying to find the right person who can give the greatest benefit to us, to make us look the best, is rarely called love. And James is saying the church of Jesus Christ needs to operate out of love. What is good Churching. What does that look like? James is often paraphrasing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. Let's look at what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, verse 46. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there in that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect. It's that word James loves, perfect or complete. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect or complete. How often do we operate in our relationships based on calculation? The person we enjoy spending more time with, the person who is more productive in our life, the person we can trust more. How often does compassion outweigh our own personal benefits? In the church body, our relationships should look different. Our small groups should look different. Our young adult hangouts should look different. Our senior care should look different. We should invest in those, not because we can get a return, but we invest because what has been invested into us is so priceless. The gospel is about loving grace and mercy, and they have no return for the one who is giving them. Continuing down, James writes in verse 8, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. James is trying to make this argument here that it's very easy to say, well, I'm following Christ, I'm, I'm following the scriptures because I don't murder, I don't steal, I'm sexually pure, I stay in my marriage. But he says it's not enough and there's trip ups all over the place where we need the grace of God on our lives. He says even in how you interact, if you're showing favoritism and if you're always around people who look like you and are good to you, even non-Christians do that. Anybody loves the people who look like them and contribute into their lives. But are you going out of your way to break your social circle, to break your return on investment relationally, to draw others in and care for them? In this passage, 
James quotes the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says this. It's also a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, a chapter in the Old Testament where the law is given about caring for others and valuing those who are vulnerable. The golden rule here drives us to the question, who is my neighbor? To which James would reply, everyone, every image bearer, every human being on earth, every person, the rich and the poor, the close and the far, the similar and the very different. James warns in four questions back to back in this chapter, how easy it is to say this and then turn around and favor those we can get something from to favor those who are most similar to us. Yes, four penetrating questions. Number one, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? He's driving to the idea that Jesus lays out that God chooses the unwise to shame the wise. God chooses the poor in order to demonstrate how powerful and good he is. In order to say it wasn't God and these characteristics. It wasn't God and he was very good looking and strong. It wasn't God and his family was very wealthy and had a lot of privilege. He wants us to be able to look and say it was him and his grace and mercy alone on our lives. This is what Jesus means when he says blessed are the poor because in their poverty they are forced to rely on God's presence. Second, he says, aren't they the ones, the poor, who inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? He's directly referring back to Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes. And he's pointing to multiple scriptures where Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. How hard it is for us when we live with great privilege and wealth to enter into the kingdom, to move ourselves into the mindset that it's not our productivity, to enter into the mindset that this earth and its fleeting wealth does not last in eternity and does not define our self-worth. It is difficult to be wealthy and still rely on the kingdom of God and his presence working in us. Third question, but you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppose you and drag you into court? It says you love the people who wield their power over you because you hope that by turning a blind eye to their corruption or turning a blind eye to their abuse, you might gain some crumbs of their wealth and privilege. You might gain some of their favor that they lord over you. He says, why do you keep favoring the people who are exploiting you and the world around you? This isn't me trying to push a communist agenda. This is St. James pushing against the power dynamics of this world. And whether it is trusting in the free market and those who run great businesses or trusting in government programs and systems, he says if it is based on human power and authority, it can be and will be corrupted. And we must speak truth to those powers and advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves. This is the call of the church, to advocate for the vulnerable, to advocate for the poor, to advocate for the widow and for the refugee, to fight for those who can't, and to use our own privilege and wealth to advocate for those without it, and to challenge those who can become blind by their own power and privilege. 
Fourth and final question. Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Again, driving to the heart of earthly power. And that throughout scripture, wealth and privilege is the constant enemy of the kingdom of God. These are hard truths to hear for those of us who live in the wealthiest nation to ever exist in human history. But our wealth makes us blind to the compassion God wants us to live in. And we must regularly return back into his presence and allow the message and the actions of Jesus to convict us of our own wealth and power. Later on in James chapter 2, now in verse 14, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but you don't show it by your actions? This is the running theme of James' letter. Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye and have a nice day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What does that do? James is driving us to the question of genuine faith or faith that works, works in our lives and works in the world. Genuine faith works. It works at transforming our lives to be more like Jesus, and it works to transform the world to be more like the kingdom of heaven. This is the faith James is calling us to, faith that does something and transforms us and the world. And in this short couple of verses, James is giving what I think is probably the most applicable 21st century challenge of the New Testament. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. This is what we give to suffering and struggling around the world. Thoughts and prayers. I'll post it up when there's a tragedy. I'll share it and text it to someone. Thoughts and prayers with your family. Thoughts and prayers for the people around the world. A social media post shows solidarity, it can make others aware of societal disparities, and it can be a call to prayer through social media. And all of these are nice and helpful. The greatest danger, and I think regularly what it does, is it numbs us to thinking we've actually done something for a tragedy and for a struggle and for a cause. Well, I posted about it. I'm a good person. I, sh I argued with someone in a chat forum. I think I've done my part. Posting on the internet does not free us from the responsibility and the call to do something in the physical world. There are human rights tragedies happening right now as I'm recording this sermon. It is apropos in our lives. And if we're honest, it has been accurate for all of human existence. Right now, as I'm recording this sermon, there is a human tragedy and devastation happening in the nation of Afghanistan. This last week, there was a 7.2 earthquake in Haiti, already with broken infrastructure and poverty. And COVID is now again spreading rapidly through schools in the southern portion of the United States. These are struggles and trials that are very real. They are also ones we typically respond to with a social media post and some sort of encouragement. And for real, we ask the questions, and James is challenging us to this, well, what do I do? James's illustration about talking to someone who's poor on the street and is cold makes sense in one situation. I give that person my coat, and then 
what do I do for the second person just 20 feet down the road? I don't have a second coat. How do I handle this? And now when we think about our exposure to over 7 billion people across the whole globe, it can become paralyzing as to what do I do? And so I revert back to thoughts and prayers. Now I'm going to give you five concrete things you can do. And these are me, not James. This is my application of what James is saying in the modern world. This is not scripture. This is my hopefully wisdom. Number one, pray for real. Get on your knees and seek God for these people. Seek God for the vulnerable people in Afghanistan who partnered with the U.S. government who are now left there and are vulnerable and are targets of oppression or even death. Pray for the church that is on the very real edge of actual martyrdom. Pray for soldiers and U.S. resources that have been invested that are now questioning at a very deep level what we were doing. And pray for our world that is regularly hurting with geopolitical tragedy. Pray for those in Haiti. Pray for organizations that are there in the nation working to rebuild. Pray for those who are most vulnerable and suffer the most during tragedies. Pray for our nation. Pray for teachers. Pray for frontline workers. Again, lift them up. Pray for wisdom and compassion on one another. Pray in the morning. Pray in the evening. Pray in the moment when you see something happen. Don't plan for it, but pray then and there. Second, give to programs that are helping. This is a big aspect of Kingdom Builders for us as a church. I don't know enough about geopolitical complexities as organizations run by those who care and love do. Partner with those organizations. Seek out ones from people who know and have been on the ground in those circumstances. Give and partner with them. Three, and this one's a tricky one, let your theology influence your politics rather than the other way around. As you read the writings of St. James, as you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, see what they emphasize, see what Jesus cares about, what they challenge us to do, and let that influence how you vote and who you support. We see James regularly challenging us to advocate for the vulnerable and for the poor. Ask yourself, what would Jesus be advocating for? How does my vote help the poor and vulnerable, the refugee, the child, and the elderly? Finally, what are we doing locally? We serve in tangible ways every month through Kingdom Builders with our local partners helping in vulnerable areas. How can I do my part locally? I may not be able to fly around the world, but I can affect small moments of change in my neighborhood, in my family, in my locale, here where God has placed me. And then additional bonus one, the fifth one. Show compassion on one another who are struggling through an overwhelming and weary world. You may disagree with someone. You may vehemently disagree. Show compassion and mercy on them in your discourse, in your conversation, in your relationships. Show mercy in your relationships and conversations. We are all struggling. And as we look at the size and scope and scale of the world, 
only the intervention of Jesus Christ can transform in such a wide level, show in the small level compassion to each other. Lastly, as we close out this letter from James in chapter 2, James gives two concrete examples as he closes out the second chapter of his letter. Two concrete examples of faith in action. Abraham and Rahab. He says, Abraham took his faith in God and put it into action. He climbed a mountain and was ready to give up his own son because of his belief in the goodness of the God that called him. Rahab turned on her own people and abandoned her culture out of a belief that God's people had something real and were representing a God moving that she wanted to interact with. She hid the Israelites, she protected them, and trusted that when they took the city, they would show mercy on her. He could have gone on in writing this and talked about Joseph who challenged Pharaoh, David who went into battle against a giant, the prophets who call out kings and priests, But at the heart of it is about Jesus, who not only spoke words, but took actions. And to understand that our faith as followers of Jesus, those who call on the name of Christ and identify as Christian churches, are part of a faith that is actionable and tangible and physical in its expression. It works in our lives and it works in the world. Jesus put on a body and he touched people. He healed those who were sick. He gave sight to those who were blind. He taught in the streets publicly, and then he physically went to the cross and died a physical death in order that we may have physical, eternal life through him. We have a call to live out our faith. It must affect our choices, decisions, and how we live in this world. As it is famously said, We are not saved by good works, but we are saved into a life of good works. As James is closing out this chapter, he makes reference back to the Sermon on the Mount again. And we're going to close reading some challenging words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Jesus says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name and we performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents, and the floodwaters rise, and the wind beats against the house, it will not collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come, and the winds beat against the house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Those of us who haven't re-evaluated our lives, whether at the early stages of our faith or regularly re-evaluating how we have built our lives, who we are, our decisions and priorities, and realign them to the teachings and actions of Jesus, 
are in very real danger of when pressure and storm comes, collapsing under the weight of our own self-actions and worth. We need to continually rebuild. Am I living based on the teachings of Jesus? Is my life and choices built on his actions and character? Am I trusting him to be generous to me so I am generous to others? Am I believing in his mercy for me that I may show unmerited mercy to others? What changes do we need to make? What confessions do we need to offer? And what disciplines do we need to begin in order to follow Jesus and live out a faith that works? What does a Christian do? You may be watching this video today and you may not have confidently a relationship with Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity in this moment to pray a first prayer, a first step of following Jesus as Savior, King, and friend. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can recommit along with me in this moment and continue to ground ourselves on the bedrock. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, today, I believe that you are God and King. I believe that you made me and gave my life value and that you then came to this earth when I was full of sin, in rebellion, lost in my own selfishness, you came and you lived a perfect life. You loved, you healed, you cared, and you challenged. And then you took my sin upon yourself on the cross. You lived a perfect life, and yet you died for my imperfection and sin. You were buried in the ground, And on the third day, you rose to life, resurrected with fullness of glory, and that by trusting in you with my life, I may have eternal life and fullness of life in this world. You gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you. If you prayed that for the first time today, let us know by clicking one of the links around this video. We would love to celebrate with you and continue this walk of faith together in following Jesus. Thank you for joining me for this teaching through the New Testament letter of James.